0: For our meditation this morning, let's take a look at Luke 13, where we were last week in our study. I was thinking about that text that Dan quoted where Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This, of course, was Old Testament theology. This was one of the most humbling truths ever spoken by God to His people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it hits the human heart uh, with such profoundness when you know God because you know your own life. And there is every reason every day for Him to leave us and forsake us. And yet He says, I will never do that. And Just when Dan was saying it, I, I was gripped once again. That's so humbling. It also is a reminder that we often get God wrong when we think of Him in His works with His people. The notion in the Old Testament that God is this swing-fire God who, who shoots first and asks questions later, who, who is quick to deal out retribution, who's this God of wrath. I mean, even, even when you talk to pagans in the culture who have heard things about God, whatever, they, they often say that, oh, you know, the The God of the Old Testament is just this wrathful, angry God. And then we'll often contrast that at times, wrongly so, with the New Testament as if it's a different God somehow, as if somehow we've entered into some era where sin is winked at, nothing is actually dealt with, and and God sort of loses His divine spine. None of this is true. In fact, you cannot conceive of God and his character and his perfections and his goodness without seeing all of them at work. And indeed, it is true, the cherubim and the seraphim did pronounce and do pronounce eternally around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It is true that he's holy and it is true what he said to Moses, you cannot look at me and live as a human being. There must be some protection because you do not measure up. Until you are given grace at a level that will bring glory to me in utter perfection, you do not measure up. You would die. What a gracious thing to say to Moses, no man can see me and live. So Moses, I'm not going to let you see me. What a kindness. We often get God wrong. And we come to this text that we've been in, and we finish it this morning, the end of Luke 13, with this very thing on the lips of Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, who is the full explanation of the Father, John 1.18. Here is what God is like, and He expressed it over and over and does the same here as Luke records for us you remember that in this section, beginning in verse 31, man was scheming again. The Pharisees were scheming with King Herod. They were using him as a bit of a pawn. Herod was a nervous, sort of neurotic guy, and the Pharisees used him. But their scheme was the same all along. They wanted to sort of push Jesus to Jerusalem, get him under the power of the Sanhedrin, so that that could come crushing down on his head, and they could get rid of him. And this was Of course, Satan's scheme as well. He wanted to end God's sovereign plan. We just sang of God's sovereign rulership. God has a plan. Nothing can stop it. And nothing can move it in a different direction, speed it up, change what the plan was when God himself came to earth as a man to do this great redemptive work, which Jesus points out to them. He says, verse 32, you you go and tell that cunning vermin, Herod, that I I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. That is to say I have power over supernatural forces, power over disease and death, and a scheduled mission. There's nothing you can do to scheme against it. You're a mere human puppet king, really. And the third day, I'll reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And here he brings in Israel's ugly history. Look, you want to take my life. I know that. That's your history. That's the history of your people. I come as your Messiah and say you must acknowledge that you are imperfect and condemned and need a Savior. You keep telling me you don't need a Savior. You're righteous on your own. And no wonder you stone every messenger brought to you. No wonder. And why such an ugly history mentioned here again? Because this is the great contrast. Everything in us, by the time you get to verse 32, verse 33 rather, is, is a sense of disgust. How can it be? Every prophet that came to them, they slaughtered. Every prophet got stoned. Every kind gesture from Jesus was treated with contempt. And now here, the Messiah himself, he's on the way to Jerusalem to die for his people and they'd like to end him early because they hate him, they hate his message, they hate his person, they hate his power, they hate the fact that the people are influenced by him and they want the people's influence because they want the people to worship them and say that they are holy. This is just flat out arrogant jealousy and the height of pride. That is Israel's ugly history, and Jesus goes to his death for them. And it sets up, as Luke wants us to know, a contrast. The contrast between what we deserve and what God does. Notice the breathtaking compassion of God as Jesus expresses it here. Verse 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is the holy city. This is the place where the true God is to be worshipped. He's supposed to be worshipped. This is the place where worshipping in spirit and truth is to be the pinnacle, the height of all of it. (laughs) This is God's people. This is the center of all of it since the beginning. Jerusalem, the place the world is supposed to come to, to learn about God. And Jesus begins to express the breathtaking compassion of God. First of all, you note here that it is heart-rending. It's heart-wrenching to Jesus. It is emphatic, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus becomes here emotionally overwhelmed. Think about that. He'd just been schemed against. He just had to say, hey, go back and deliver the message to Herod. He's got no power. He's a king, but he's a human king. That's nothing against me, against God. And then he says, and you, I have to go to Jerusalem because it is true. Every prophet dies in that holy place. You kill us all. Of course I've got to go there. And in that moment, Jesus becomes overwhelmed emotionally, gripped emotionally. He's broken in his heart over the situation of his people. It's equivalent to being... Emotionally gripped as when you when you would grab someone's face and show them your eyes and your eyes well up with tears and you're trying to say the most important thing you could ever say to them. That's this moment for Jesus. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Look at the nineteenth chapter of Luke very quickly. He'd say this again. Very close to his death. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And he said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. We were just singing about the sovereign rulership of our great God who won't leave us as orphans, who hems us in on every side. When he looked over Jerusalem, he saw that they had been rejecting him and they were crying, Hosanna, but later would say, crucify him. And he says, you have gotten it all wrong. You missed it. Even you, God's people, if you'd known what makes for peace, and now your enemies are going to come in, it won't be God hemming you in on every side like that. He'll be allowing as a judgment your enemies to hem you in. Verse 44, they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will leave not in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God's compassion is heart-wrenching. He doesn't long to see this happen for generations. You remember what happened. Titus Vespasian came in and, and absolutely decimated Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the temple was destroyed and her people taken off into bondage or slaughtered. God's people, the nation. Paul would later tell the church at Rome, look, don't imagine God has forsaken His people, but there is a partial hardening, a time of hardening for a an, an host of Jews and in Israel hardening because there are Gentile salvations the gospel is going to spread to. And as the Gentile nation spread over the globe for however long God has determined it's going to provoke Israel to jealousy one day. But right now, they're going to topple. The temple will be destroyed. Her people will be killed. Oh, Jerusalem, what have you done? God's compassion is heart wrenching. Back to the 13th chapter, it is also unwarranted. We'd already seen that. It is unwarranted compassion. They don't deserve it. Look what Luke 13 says the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, verse 34. (laughs) I, I just cannot get over this reality that though it is true that as human beings we want others to be compassionate and merciful to us every time we fail them, it is also true that we strongly resist having compassion on others who wrong us. We are duplicitous, we are phonies, we are hypocrites. We want... A ton of compassion when we harm other people, but when someone harms us, a sense of our, our rights rises up within us and we offer very little of the same measure. And that's why the gods invented by false religion are always compassionless deities who abuse power and they're quick to retaliate. Because they're false gods, they're created by fallen human beings, and our self-made deities are just like us, always like us. We dole out vengeance swiftly and often. We dole it out on the smallest amount of information. Oh, we heard a little thing that went against us, we just go after it. We don't even investigate sometimes if we've been harmed by someone, we cry, justice without mercy. Justice without mercy. Before we've even thought about the implications for our own life. Our gods are just like we are. When we want, when we want impunity because we've harmed someone else, we get incensed when someone makes us feel justice. Listen to Psalm 78. Just listen to this. The psalmist speaking the words of God says, and I don't want you to be like the previous generation's fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and in whose spirit, was, and the, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They didn't keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He'd shown them. How could you forget His deeds and His miracles? And he wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, Psalm 78 says, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea. He caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. And then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock. He caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued in sin against Him to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, he says, they put God to the test by asking food according to their their desire. And then they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They didn't even believe him. You can't take care of us. And when you do, it isn't even our preference. Behold, he struck the rock, so the waters gushed out. Streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? That's what they said. Therefore the Lord heard, and he was full of wrath, and his fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. And man did eat the bread of angels, and he sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. And when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, he just gave them them food, gave them water, constantly took care of them. And yet he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. And so these animals came out of heaven, falling to the ground so that Israel could eat. And they ate and were well filled, and their desire he gave to them. And before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed some of their stoutest ones. Why? They're unbelievers. They hate God, they want what they want. And they subdued, and He subdued the choice men of Israel, God did. And in spite of all this, verse 32 says, they still sinned. And they did not believe in His wonderful works. So what did God do? First of all, he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. He chastened them. He took out the unbelieving leaders and the unbelieving stout men of the nation who were leading everyone astray. He took them out. And when he took them out, they were filled with terror and they returned and searched diligently for God. And you would expect right then God to say, no way is not going to happen. Oh, now you want my help. They remembered that God was their rock. (laughs) Something inside me wants to say, yeah, but you didn't remember when the rock was giving you water. That's inside of me. And they remembered the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth. They lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. And then this, verse 38, but he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. That is to say, he preserved his people. He did not leave them nor forsake them. Listen, God's compassion is heart-wrenching as expressed by Jesus, and it is unwarranted, clearly. And yet, thirdly, what we notice back in Luke 13 about his compassion, it is undying. Notice how this is expressed by the Lord. Verse 34, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The mercy and compassion of God is relentless. He's not to be viewed as some ogre like like we think of dominance and authority and justice. You want to hear the compassion of Almighty God to save souls? Then listen to the heart of Jesus right here. Because this is the same nation that has killed her servants of truth again and again. This is the same nation who in less than 40 days went from worshiping Yahweh in their deliverance to worshiping a man-made statue of gold in less than 40 days. This is the same nation who was nothing in the sight of the global culture. They were small, they were insignificant, they were vulnerable, and they were literally, as cultures go, tossed aside without any hope of survival and like an abandoned infant, Ezekiel 16 says, they were left to starve in the desert, on the desert floor, as an infant that's cast aside, aborted. They were nothing. And God made them the people of his own possession. He made them something. And yet they were stiff-necked from the very first days. And even as stiff-necked people, he made a covenant with them, and he swore. By his own name that the covenant would never be broken by him. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why? Because he swore by his own goodness, his own character, which he wanted known. And this people were always walking away from him they regularly judged him you're not the kind of god that we thought could take care of us they were always running to the false gods of the pagan nations around them and they were violent and deadly against anyone whom yahweh sent to them with words warning them and with offerings of forgiveness they were violent and deadly against all of them this same people look at romans 10 Keep your finger in Luke 13. Look at Romans 10. We can't get around this. Notice how they are described in the letter to the church at Rome. Verse 15. How will there be preachers for the people unless they're sent just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I'm saying to you, surely they, they couldn't have heard, have they? I mean, why would they reject it? Surely they must not have heard it. Oh, but they have indeed, verse 18 their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, oh, not Israel. Surely Israel didn't know, did they? How would God's own people reject the message of the good news Moses says, verse 19, I'll make you jealous by that which is not a nation, and by a nation without understanding I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who didn't seek me, I became manifest to those who didn't ask for me. I had to take the gospel to the people around my own people because my own people didn't believe the report. So I took it to the people around them to make them jealous... Does that mean he stopped reaching out for Israel? No, verse 21, as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Beloved, I gotta tell you, sometimes when you think about your Christian life, this is why we sing what we've been singing today. All day long, don't you feel at times that God reaches out to you and you're just stiff-necked and obstinate? That is what... The human heart is all about. And God continues to reach. In fact, notice his compassion is not only undying, back to Luke 13, but it is possessive. How often I wanted to gather you just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. This is. Familiar territory for Israel. They should have known the language of a bird brooding over the young ones. Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. God catches them and protects them. Nothing can touch them. Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. There's that familiar language that makes its way into so much of our musical poetry. Psalm 61, 4, let me dwell in your tent forever, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wing. Isaiah 31.5, like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. He watches. He hovers. The terminology here that Jesus spoke was, was of a bird brooding because the young belong to the mother bird. She gathers them under her wings. And it's, it's a verb that's stronger than just the possessive type verb here. It's a verb that says they belonged personally to him. It's his very own personal will that wanted to gather them in and shelter them. It's this involvement. He's very involved in wanting to shelter them. How often I wanted this. How often I, I, I came at you for this. It was my heart, my purpose, my actions. And some of you who don't know Christ, God continues to pursue you. And you would not notice that his compassion is therefore also merciful. Oh, how often I would have done this, and you would not have it. Whew. Heart is so rebellious simply too astounding to grasp this mercy this grace this patience i said to you the goodness of god is some total of his perfections and when he proclaimed his goodness before moses he said the lord the lord god is compassionate and gracious slow to anger that is the issue here he is merciful, which means he's good toward those in distress, certainly the sinners in distress. He's not compelled by the sinner's distress, he's compelled by his own character for the distressed. And the Lord is gracious or compassionate, which means he's good toward those who deserve only punishment. So his goodness is reflected in mercy, in that he he wants to express mercy to to the distressed, and his goodness is manifested in his compassion, in that he's compassionate toward those who actually deserve nothing else but punishment. And oh, he's patient. He's patient. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Paul will call him in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. In Christ we are we are told to draw near to God's throne so that we might receive both mercy and grace. James chapter 5 verse 11 same thing. Scripture emphasizes that God's grace toward those who deserve only punishment is never obligated by anything in the Fallen sinner, it is given freely because it is God's character. That's why he said what he said to Moses. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is my prerogative and it is my nature, therefore I do it. I Like Psalm 119, 132, Turn to me and be gracious to me after the manner with those who love your name. Be gracious to me because it is the way you've always treated the people that that are on, under your favor. And God is patient. Slow to anger. His kindness and forbearance and patience, Romans 2 verse 4 says. So his compassion, his compassion is Remarkable. It is heartrending. It is unwarranted. It is undying. And his compassion is possessive. It is merciful. But notice it's also ultimate. It's ultimate. Verse 35 behold, your house is left to you desolate. And <laughs> that should be where it ends but God wants to display another element of his compassion. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's going to be yet a remnant who still says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There will still be some who call it blessed. Not just those like in Philippians where every knee bows, whether you bow as, his, as one who worships him truly or whether you honor him as a pagan and bow under your your Lord and Master before judgment. No, there's, there's a remnant who's actually going to see it as blessed. Why? Because his compassion is ultimate. There will be consequences for rebellion. Your house is left to you desolate. But there will also be a vindication of God's compassion. You'll not see me until, until there's a whole remnant in Israel. Paul says this in Romans 11. Thus, when they are provoked to jealousy by the time of the salvation of the Gentiles globally, there will be a time when all Israel, the nation of Israel, at the time when God is determined, they will all look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as an only son and they will be saved. How can this be? Why why don't they just get cut off? The same reason you and I are never cut off. And so, as we come to the Lord's table, let's just put the exclamation point on this from Colossians. Let's put the exclamation point on this from Colossians. Notice chapter 3. You want to know what the implications are for us? This rich theology, what practical benefit does it have? Colossians 3 verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you and beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You're chosen of God, holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion. How can we struggle though we may with with this whole dynamic of living in a fallen world and being harmed by fallen people and harming fallen people and all the dynamics we have to deal with, how can we know our God is never leaving us, never forsaking us, always compassionate, and then not then pass that to others? How can we not do that? Our God full of compassion. He will judge rebellion. Stubbornness is a terrible thing. But God continues relentlessly to hand out the truth to stiff-necked people. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Take a moment in your heart and if there are sins to be confessed if there's wrong views of god to be repented of if there is sinful fear and sinful and selfish perspectives and opinions if there's resentments and bitternesses if there's unforgiveness and then Take it before the Lord, before we take the Lord's table. For we don't want to eat and drink judgment to ourselves because we've not considered these matters. Just take a moment in the quietness of your heart.